there's a microphone there. Bit sad when you've got to pick up your own microphone. Oh, you've got one. Oh, good. Okay, so um, first of all, welcome, and we, it's an honour to have you here, and we look forward to hearing what you've got to say with us. Now, my understanding is we've, as a church, partnered with you guys since 2007. So, uh, again, an honour and a privilege for us to travel the journey with you. Uh, before we get too far into this, um, I know you've got children, so let's hear about your family first. Yeah. We, we did invite them to come up with us. Is that invitation is still open to you girls if you want to come up. No, no they're no, sitting okay. at the back shaking their heads. Uh, <laughs> so, so normally um, uh, we're, we're up on the screen, are we, being interviewed. So it's really nice to be here this morning and to... Um, uh, just to be able to in person express our, um, our incredible gratitude and our love as, um, for the support of, of Kilsai South since yeah, 2007. So, uh, yeah, so we're actually taking a, a season out um, to give the girls a, a time to uh, just experience life in Australia. Uh, so Grace and Ruby are at Dramana College, uh, Secondary College and Millie's at um, Little Red Hill. So it's quite a different... Um, so, so I take them to school, we drive through the, uh, the hinterland of Red Hill and uh, it, it's spectacular and we're just falling in love with, <laughs> with the region. We're staying with Jodie's parents down there. Uh, it, it's quite uh, a contrast between, uh, you know, getting up in the morning, uh, stepping over uh, young, young people uh, that have been, um, you know, that are homeless literally stepping over them, uh, this is back in Bangkok, taking the girls to school through the, through the craziness of a Bangkok city. So mm. we're actually enjoying just a season out. In fact, we're kind of terming it, looking at it as a, an oasis of transformation. And if we look at the people of... Uh, the, the Hebrew people, as they came out of um, Egypt, God graced them with uh, a place called Elam where, where there was 12 springs and 70 palm trees where they could just rest mm. and rediscover... And, and reimagine what life can be like. Um, so we're, we're, we're incredibly grateful for this season to, to reimagine, uh, to, yeah, to rest and, and to recuperate after 11 years uh, living in a, in, a, in a slum community of 80,000 people. It's uh, just taking a big, deep breath and uh, uh, just, just breathing in God's grace, uh, which, uh, as you'll hear this morning... Uh, from Jody is is what we've learned over the over our eleven years that this tender, compassionate, loving God um, is just completely for us mm. and about restoring us, reconciling us, renewing us, and uh, we're just so fortunate to have the blessing and the encouragement and the support mm. of our friends here at, at Kilsyth mm. South. So thank you. Mm. I'm not sure if this one's appropriate. You're the brother of uh, Andy McCartney here. Um, who's the older? Andy's... I'm the younger, younger brother of Andy, yeah. And uh, we've, uh, we're only 14 months in, in, in age difference. Uh, so um, when I came along, I nudged him off the... Uh, off his mum's... <laughs> Don't go there. No. <laughs> And I said, move aside, buddy. <laughs> and uh, so he was gracious enough to, uh, to, to, to move aside. But we're, yeah, incredibly blessed uh, to be um, connected with, with Kilsites through Andy and Joss and the boys. So uh, incredible joy. 
there we share. One final question from me before I hand over. Uh, you work for UNO. Who and, who and what is UNO? Yeah, fantastic question. So, so UNO is, uh, it stands for Urban Neighbours of Hope and, and basically we're an organisation that embed ourselves in, in neighbourhoods and, and we've embedded ourselves in, in, a, in a poor neighbourhood in Bangkok, in Thailand and uh, it's a slum community of 80,000 people where um, really it's a, people are, are starved of, of not just food in some cases but, but ultimately love um, compassion, poor in uh, friendship, relationship, poor in uh, access to healthcare and education. And so uh, we, we, we call that home. Uh, it's where our girls have grown up. And uh, yeah, we, we, we actually miss it dearly, despite the, the hardships that we face there and our neighbours face. Um, and, and it's termed some people in Bangkok will call, have called it a cancer of Bangkok. It's a tumour that needs to be removed. And, um, you know, there's talk that this slum community, which, is, which we're squatting on, on land that belongs to the government or the Port Authority, may be, be destroyed, may be removed. But um, for people to be told that they're a tumour, they're a cancer that need to be removed, is actually incredibly difficult. Uh, uh, just deep lies in it, mm. and so to stand with people and say, uh, "You are the beloved. You are God's mm. child. You are embraced by, by God, and therefore, you know, as us as God's God's um, people, then then our job becomes very simple. Actually, is to to to, to offer God's tenderness and compassion mm. to to those in our neighbourhood. So uh, that that can look like a various um, things of uh, running, running uh, projects that employ people, um, running house churches or youth groups or kids' clubs, all sorts of things. So that, I guess primarily we, we embed ourselves in neighbourhoods and become part of, of these, these communities, these neighbourhoods. Thank you. All right, Jodie, all over to you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, as Chris said, we just are so grateful for the partnership that we've shared with Kilsyth. And um, yeah, we have so many, so many faces here that um, are beautiful friends, have become beautiful friends to us um, through your amazing partnership. So yeah, we, we're really grateful and thanks for having us and allowing us to share some of our learnings. Um, it isn't easy, loving others doesn't come easily, does it? Um, I, the first time I encountered a young man called Dare was about 10 years ago and I was sitting at the front of our house and um, seeking refuge from the in oppressive heat and uh, just out front of our house is a sort of probably from here to the back wall is, um, was, is a concrete space so this space is kind of this concrete uh, area and at the back there would be a the freeway, so there's an overhead freeway going across. And so we'd often go outside and try and seek shade, try and get away from the heat. And it's impossible, it's an impossible task, but we all try it. Um, and I wasn't the only one, there, there was crowds, there were people everywhere, there's kids tearing around on bikes, uh, there's grandmas fanning babies, trying to keep them cool. Um, there's young people trying to sleep off their, uh, their, abusing, their abusing of drugs the night before. And it, there's lots of people, it's crowded. Um, and then a commotion broke out. 
And just sort of beyond, beyond a few people, I could see uh, a young, athletic uh, man just, just in a pair of shorts, and, you know, he's kind of ripped, you know, he's really strong, but he's just hurling verbal abuse. He's just screaming at the top of his lungs. And my tie at that stage, we, we'd only been there maybe at 18 months, and my tie wasn't that great, so I was only catching some words, and I was like, but it didn't, you didn't, don't need to speak a language to know when someone's angry. You can kind of read between the lines. And uh, he was furious, and he was absolutely lashing out. And beyond him, I could just see sort of a few people. And before I could even move, he had th thrown his body weight, and he'd pushed this young woman. And she'd fallen to the ground, and the verbal abuse continued. And then the physical abuse started. And he started to kick and kick. And I, I, I had been told time and time again, don't, inter don't interfere, don't, you know, never get involved. Um, and everyone in, the, in, in, in this courtyard is, is standing there, looking, but no one's doing anything. And I, I thought, I can't, I can't stand by, this is not right. And uh, so in my really terrible tie, I just, I just said to him, enough, enough, you have to stop, this isn't okay. And I was terrified because I thought, I don't know what's going to happen if he's going to turn on me or if the neighbourhood will turn on me because you don't interfere. You don't interfere with other people. But to my great relief, he, he stopped and, uh, and he, he glared at me and he, and he threw some parting words at, at the woman on the ground. And uh, I turned and as I reached down to, to help her up, I noticed her pregnant belly. This poor woman, it was his girlfriend, and pregnant with their child. How do you love someone like that? How do you love someone who clearly does not know how to love others? How do, how do, how do I, as someone who's called to be in that community, show love to someone who is, is, is really a monster? Now, I hear you guys have been um, looking through um, John 15 at the vine and the branches. And it's a beautiful passage. And uh, it's full of so much, so much goodness for us to learn from. And uh, this morning, I just want to share with you some, some of our learnings that, that relate in some way to that passage um, over the last 11 years. Um, Verse 12 of, of John 15 in the Vine and the Branches actually says, I, I guess this is probably the clearest part of the whole passage. Jesus says, this is my commandment, to love one another as I have loved you. We're called to love. As people of God, that is our call. Our call is to love. And at times it can feel impossible. And it it actually probably is in our own strength. But if we take the example of Christ, we move towards people on the fringe. We move towards people that are unlovely. We move towards people in pain. We move towards people that are rejected and despised. We move towards people that abuse. We move towards people that have been abused. That's our call as people who follow Jesus. Our call is to love. Bapai is a, a lady, one of, one of the things that we um, do on a weekly basis is we, we visit people in our community 
And uh, I first met Bapai, oh, it must be maybe, oh, I didn't even know how long. It's, it's been a number of years. Um, and the reason we first met Bapai was because um, someone in our neighbourhood had told us that she had a daughter who had a disability. And they were really concerned about Duke, their daughter, um, Bapai's daughter. Now, Duke was born uh, normal and a healthy baby. And she was the second child to Bapai. And Bapai and her husband, they loved and cared for their children as, as just as any of us would, to the best of their ability. But, you know, their best was probably just not enough because just to get food on the table, just to feed their children, um, some days it just, they just didn't have money to buy the food. So it was, it was hard. When the kids needed support and needed to go to school, she couldn't afford to send them to school. When her kids needed medical care, she couldn't afford to take them to the doctor. And Bapai did everything in her ability to care for her kids, and she loved them so, so well. And when Duke was about eight or nine, she had a febrile convulsion. She, she, came, she became really sick and unwell, and as a result of the febrile convulsion, and because she couldn't get medical care, um, she was left with permanent brain damage. Now, in a culture like Thailand, so Thailand is predominantly Buddhist culture, where uh, they believe in karma. So they believe that if you've done something, if, if you're maybe ill or if you have a disability, for example, you must have done something to deserve that in a previous life, because that's karma, it comes back, and, and this is kind of, you know, the result of your sin. So, you know, it's your own fault. So that can actually equate to a lack of compassion from those around them, because people kind of go, well, suck it up, you kind of, you just have to live with this disability because you've done something to deserve that. But what that means is people with disabilities in our community um, are left in isolation. And people like Dook are left in her home day after day, night after night, alone. So me and uh, one of our Thai friends, Oi, we, we visit with Duk and Bapai. We try and go, probably every fortnight we'll, we'll go and visit her because we visit a number of other people as well. Well, just a few... I mean, Bapai is, is one of these women who... She just has so much pain in her life. She... Uh, a number of years ago, so, you know, not, you know, she's already got the odds against her. She's in a slum, you know. Uh, her daughter's now dis disabled. Then a few years back, I got news that her husband had been killed tragically in a motorbike accident. So she's lost her husband, her daughter's dis disabled. She's got no one to help her um, bring money home, and her son's in prison. Just a month ago, as we, we um, yeah, sadly lost Chris's dad, and that was a tragic loss for our family. And just the day before we were about to bury Hugh and um, hold his Thanksgiving service, I got a message from Oi in Bangkok, my friend, and she said, I'm so sorry to tell you, but Duk died last night. This poor, helpless uh, woman trapped in her disabled body, um, and this poor mother 
who's lost her husband, her daughter, and has no way to even pay for a funeral. She knows pain. She knows incredible pain. Her world seems nothing more than pain and suffering. But the reality is, and I think one of our big learnings that we have discovered since living in Thailand is that to be human is to know pain. None of us, none of us can avoid it. You may not live in a slum and you may not have faced the same kind of trials that Bob High has, but you've known pain. We've all been hurt. Even if, we've, even if it's been physical pain, you know, we've all fallen over. We've scraped our knees, we've stubbed our toes, but we've also known emotional pain. I think everyone in this room would have probably at some point in their life known what it feels like to be rejected, known what it feels like to feel unloved or to feel unwanted or to feel isolated or to feel alone. We know what it is to know pain. To live is to suffer. We're a broken people living in a broken world and we follow a God who entered into this brokenness and chose the way of brokenness to show us the way to live. You know, there's a cross at the front of the church. We follow a God who chose to be broken for us, for our brokenness. And we shouldn't be surprised, actually, when we face suffering or when we face pain because he actually told us that would be what we would encounter. In Philippians uh, 1.29, it says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. In John 15, it talks about the pruning. Pruning is painful. Now, it just so happens that... Uh, Grace, since we've moved here, or since we've been here for the last six months, um, Grace has thrown herself into Aussie culture in the most extreme way of joining an AFL football club. And uh, so we go along and cheer every week and, uh, and watch and kind of brace ourselves as she gets, you know, thrown and tackled and, and it's, uh, you know, we have to just trust that she'll be all right. Um, but it turns out her coach is actually a vine carer. He, his, his, his job is a, he tends, he actually manages vineyards on the Mornington Peninsula. So we spoke with him earlier this week and we said, what does it mean to care for a vine? Like what, tell us about that. We're, you know, we're talking at a church about, and we've, you know, this is the passage they've been looking at. Um, what does it mean, actually, in real terms, to care for a vine? And the, the insights and parallels were phenomenal with our lives. Firstly, vines always grow towards the light. Isn't that beautiful? We're designed to grow towards the light. Vines are aggressive growers, they're strong. And they can grow out of control easily if they're not pruned. The vine is never removed. Once it's planted, it is never taken out of the ground. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus? Jesus is never removed. He is always there, deeply rooted. After harvest, the pruning is essential for good fruit. So in other words, the pruning must happen if we want good fruit. 
And he said, if we don't prune, it will have lots of fruit, but it won't ripen and it will be useless. But the pruning process, this is, this is beautiful, the pruning process is not a hacking or a, or a, a mean or an um, aggressive process. It is attentive, deliberate, intentional and tender. They actually count the number of branches and they count the number of buds and it is deliberate. Pruning always, always follows a harvest. Now, before we go any further, I, I want to just say that my experience of God and what I know of God and what I read in Scripture is that I do not believe that God inflicts pain and suffering. So in this, in this story where it says God is the gardener and he, and he prunes, I do not believe that God inflicts pain upon us. But rather, as a gardener, he tends to the vine and he cares for the vine because he knows what it needs. And so... We live in a broken world and we will face pain. But as a beautiful picture of a gardener who tends to the, broken, to the brokenness, he comes and enters into that pain and he tends to that pain and he chooses to use that pain so we can grow, so that we can grow and, have, and bear fruit. Do you get that? That God doesn't inflict the pain. But the broken world that we live in, we will experience the pain and he lovingly tends to that pain. He knows what we need to ensure the best fruit. And so sometimes he doesn't take away our pain. As much as we pray and we cry out and we say, God, take this from us. But he does promise this, that he remains with us. He doesn't leave us in our pain. He remains with us. And it, he remains with us and sometimes the pain remains with us so that we can experience grace. God, in God's grace, pain leads us to a deeper faith and a more abundant life in Jesus. I've got a video that I, I'm going to ask just to be played. It goes for about five minutes. And this is a video of one of the projects that we started in uh, Bangkok. And I just want you to sit and to just feel uh, whatever it is that you feel when you watch this little video. It's, it, it's a kind of an informative video that we use um, when we talk about our work in Second Chance. Uh, particularly in Bangkok, we go into schools and we share about our work. Um, but I want you to note that every single person that's in this video has experienced incredible pain in their lives. So all of the women that you see in this video are women that work with our project, um, and every single one of them has a, has a really hard story. So let's just watch and then, um, yeah. Uh, okay, so the concept's really simple. We run a second-hand shop. And the donations that are given to us by expat communities can be dropped off here or we can pick them up. Uh, we have a, a group of people who go and collect things every day. And it comes here, then we have a team who sorts through the, the items. Um, they label them, they price them. Um, and we, we bring up some of the, the clothing and the women are able to then transform those unwanted, unloved, worn out, items and turn them into something really beautiful. 
ตขึ้นมาก็ยุคที่พองเตยแล้วแต่ว่าไม่รู้ว่าอะไรเป็นยังไงทุกคนเพราะว่าไม่ได้อยู่กับแม่ตั้งแต่สามขวบสักประมาณอายุ12ต้องออกจากเรียนเราก็มีช่วงที่แบบI just work in the hotel, right, in a cruise line ship, and then just working for myself and my family. Just um, want to collect money and move from the communities. But then I work with the SCB, and so it's changed my vision inside. It's changed. Like a, I feel like a, I have more than enough. I should be grateful what I have, and what should I give back to the communities. So when we started Second Chance, we anticipated. That it would create some employment and maybe provide access to good quality secondhand goods for people in our community, and and that we felt like that was actually meeting a really important need, and and it, and it really does. But um, the deeper stuff was the is the stuff of the um, of the self worth and dignity, living in a slum where um, the common thread or the common voice that they hear is that you're not good enough. You deserve this. We're giving an alternative voice to that. Um, we're breaking down those lies and saying, "Hey, no, actually, you are worth so much, um, and and we think that you've got so much to offer, and we want you to discover all those things that you have to offer as well." ไม่มีที่พึ่งทางไหนเลยแล้วเราได้มาทํางานที่นี่เราได้รู้จักทุกคนผู้ใหญ่สอนเราในการทํางานมันมันมันทําให้เด็กคนหนึ่งอะค่ะมันมีโอกาสได้เรียนรู้โลกที่มันกว้างกว่านี้ค่ะ To give a chance to people who need a chance a second chance of their life not just a working place it's like a a second home ทํางานที่นี่นะคะมีความสุขก็ว่าเจ้านายก็ไม่เหมือนเจ้านายบอสนี่เหมือนเพื่อนกันเลยเหมือนญาติกันนะคะอยู่ด้วยกันมีอะไรก็ช่วยเหลือกันแบ่งปันกันนะคะมีความสุขมากที่นี่ไม่ว่าจะเป็นข้างบนข้างล่างเหมือนกับน้ำหนึ่งอันเดียวกันเลยมันทำให้ชีวิตเปลี่ยนเยอะมากจากเป็นคนที่แบบเป็นคนที่แบบไม่ชอบไม่คนอื่นมากครอบครัวไม่ชอบให้ใครมาแบบอะไรเป็นคนที่ค่อนข้างแบบมีกำแพงสูงแบบสิ่งที่ฉันทำให้เรารู้สึกว่านี่คือที่ที่เราได้มันไม่ใช่เศร้าโอกาสให้เราคนเดียวลูกมันเป็นลูกๆด้วยเราไม่ได้รู้จักเป็นสังคมที่ดีด้วยเป็นมีคนรอบข้างก็รักลูกเราด้วย For me, my hope is that the work that we've started here of people starting to believe maybe that they do fit somewhere, that they do belong, that they do have worth, um, that's the stuff that I, I really hope continues to grow. It's wonderful when we invite the women often to come to when we have sales and watching people look at their things and adore them and say, wow, they're beautiful. And, for them to hear that, to hear that affirmation and to, and to believe, wow, I, I'm actually, I have a talent and I have something.
something to give and um, yeah, I created that. And, and that, I love that, that's one of my favourite things. family to us um, and it's such a joy to see that just in loving them that they have experienced that um, God's grace mm. sorry now I can't see <sighs> brokenness is our way to abundant life In this passage of the vine and the branches, the pruning isn't for pain, but for the fruit of knowing that we're loved in our pain and being able to love others. It's only after pruning that we can grow and ripen good fruit. The slum truly is a broken place. Uh, That pain is, uh, is evident. It's not hidden away. Living there has allowed me to peel back the layers of myself, And I've slowly begun to see that I'm just like people, like Dare, that I shared with at the beginning. And I'm just like Bapai. I may not have had the same life experiences as them, but I too am broken. I think growing up in uh, Australia, we're just really good at hiding it. We've just learned ways to hide our brokenness. But once I face my pain or experience pruning, It's then that I come face to face with the monsters within myself and that I can see people like Dare. They're actually the same as me. I I may not beat my husband or my kids, but I might have violence in my heart. I may not be an addict, but I use all kinds of things around me to numb my pain or my loneliness. I may not be a bully, but I'm quick at making judgments of others. When I can see the brokenness in myself and recognise it around me, I can know God's grace. Love and compassion of Christ moves us to embrace ourselves. You see, we're not only called to love others, but to love moves us towards embracing ourselves loving the stranger, the enemy, the sick, the broken within us. And when we recognise this, we recognise our need for grace. It is only when we love ourselves like Christ loves us, fully unrelenting, that we can learn to love the broken world around us. 
And that is the fruit of abiding. What we've learned in living in a broken place with broken people and seeing and learning to recognise the brokenness within ourselves is that grace. And that grace is that we are loved if we do and we're loved if we don't. And when you know it deeply, you can stop striving. You can stop, stop trying to win God over. He already loves you madly. What an incredible God we serve. That he loves us in all the seasons of our lives. In the pruning and the pain. In the growing and in the harvest. We are loved if we do. Loved if we don't. Just last year nine or ten years after I first encountered Dare, a knock came at our door and there was Dare standing uh, at, at the door. He looked very different to what he did from the first time I first saw him. He was no longer this young, fit, uh, healthy young man. In fact, he was overweight and looked really unhealthy. He looked a mess. And he asked... He told me that he'd had a motorbike accident and he said, would you help me? I've ripped my foot open and I can't afford to go to the clinic. I had a look, he limped into our house, I had a look at his foot and it was a mess. It was pus and filth and dirt and grime just oozing out of this massive gash in, in the bottom of his foot and it was swollen Would I be able to help him? Once he sat down on the floor, he began to tell us more about his life. The struggles of being in and out of prison. The struggle with addiction. His current homelessness. The pain of losing his kids being sent to children's homes because nobody wanted them. We remember together uh, the day his mum died and we were both there by her bedside. And as I listen to Dare, I remember, I am just like you. I'm imperfect. I am broken. Yet all I really want to know is that I'm loved. All I really want to know is that I'm embraced and welcomed just as I am. So we set about to bring love and healing to his foot in the hope that this too might just heal his heart. And we set about loving those around us just as they are, to love each other as we are, to see the compassion of love and Christ bring healing to people like Dare, Bapai, Bui, to all our neighbours and to ourselves. And my hope is that you, the people beside you, the people you work with, the people in your homes, at your schools, may also know that you are completely loved and welcomed just as you are. And that you will live with that hope that you are loved if you do, loved if you don't.